Uh, as you know, we've been in this summer series, and just as a reminder, right, when we go on vacation, we go because we need to go. We go because we need to take a break, but oftentimes the things that we need to break from, they come right along with us. Those burdens that we carry, the habits that we have, our work perhaps, they uh, tend to make the flight, do the travel right along with us. And so we've come up with this series that if you get an opportunity to get out, out, of, the, out of the city this summer, that this helps prepare us for wherever we're going to go and whoever we're becoming, wherever it is that we are. And so for the summer, we've been looking at places in the Bible in which people tend to go to during the summer. Uh, we've been uh, to the mountains and seen God's people meet there, along the road, on the sea. And today we're going to be on the shore around a campfire. And it's uh, at this particular shore and along the Sea of Galilee where Peter and the disciples, they encounter the risen Jesus and they receive the risen Jesus. And so uh, let's turn together or not turn. Let's look, turn our necks uh, to the to the screens and we'll look at John 21, 1 through 19. <clears throat> Afterward. Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Peter, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. 
Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this, is to, said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And that's the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, uh, it's good to come to passages that are somewhat familiar uh, to many of us and to learn, to unlearn, and to learn again. And so, Lord, I pray you'd bless us, uh, that you would shape us, that you'd equip us for life in uncertain days. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, sometimes I like to use sports illustrations because I am a closet sports nut. Uh when I was uh, in college and in high school, there was a very famous basketball coach by the name of Jim Valvano. And Jim Valvano was the coach of North Carolina State, and he was this passionate, charismatic, Italian-American guy from Queens. And he took this upstart team and defeated the, greatest, the other great team in the land and became very famous, and it's this beautiful story. He had a great college career, and then he went on to broadcasting. And when he was about 46... He was diagnosed with cancer, uh, terminal cancer, and uh, he started this foundation called the Jimmy V Foundation. And on the night in which they announced this, he gave this speech that is just known by sports fanatics. It's one of the great sports speeches. And he talked about what he'd learned uh, as one who lived with real uncertainty of whether he was going to live or die. Uh, he talked about what it meant for him to cherish every moment. And he implored those who were listening to do the same, to live a full life, to, to not take for granted the days that you have. And he said, there are three things that you can do if you want to live a full life. And he said, if you want to live a full life, you need to spend time in thought. You need to laugh every day. And you need to be moved by emotions to tears said, you do that every day. That's a full life. What more could you ask, right? And so as we look at this passage, I don't think that that's just good advice to have a full life. I think that's actually really wise spiritual discipline so that you can grow in faith in the midst of uncertainty. That if you were to every day spend time in thought, every day be moved to, or, uh, to laugh out loud, and every day be moved by emotions to tears, then not only do you have a great day, but you actually get stronger for the season that you're in. You actually grow in your understanding of God. You're prepared to live uncertain in uncertain times with the people that are around you. And so today, let's apply Jimmy V's uh, sort of uh, ideas to this passage, and let's ask a question. In a life that's certain to be filled with uncertainties, how do you increase in your faith? So those three things. Let's first spend time in thought. And we see that to a degree here with the disciples. And let me just backtrack for a second. When we talk about spending time in thought, let's just recognize that we live in a culture and in a time where just we're inundated with information. We are always thinking. We have podcasts and articles and people reading articles to us and reading books to us. And we can, as a desire to be more informed, as a desire to be productive, to be learned, we can just go through podcast after podcast after podcast. Right? Or read, or read, or read, or read. 
That's not the kind of thought that Valvano's thinking about. That's not the kind of thought that the scriptures uh, talk about. The kind of thought that we want to be thinking about is reflection, contemplation, deep consideration of those things on the one hand that elevate us above our circumstances, and yet on the other hand, drive us into the realities of one another's lives. Right? And so uh, we can do that, not just as individuals, but we see that the disciples do that uh, as individuals and together as a community with Peter leading the way. Now, let me give one admittance here. Um, we don't see them actually thinking deeply in the passage, but what we see is the result of their deep contemplation in the passage. See, Peter says, let's go out and fish, and they say, we'll go with you. But that doesn't just come out of anywhere. It comes out of the, their basic needs. They're not sure what their job is anymore. Are they still ministry leaders in the world? Uh, it comes out of maybe they don't have food. It also comes out of uh, individual consideration, considering what's taking place in the days after Jesus' death, and then discussing it together. And it's out of those that season, or I shouldn't say season, uh, that afternoon, perhaps, in which they're quietly contemplating as individuals and discussing together that Peter finally says, I'm going to go fish. I don't actually know what to do. I don't know what the right thing is to do. We're told to go to Galilee. We're waiting here. I can't sit still. I've not reconciled with Jesus. I hear he's alive. I'm going to do what I know to do. And the disciples say, we're going to go with you. You're not alone. We're in this together. We'll all go. That's what takes place. That's the, the basic background there. But, but what are they considering? What are they considering that brings them to that place? They're considering life and light of the resurrection. Now, here are the circumstances. Up to this moment, they've seen Jesus twice. And not just for the blink of an eye. They've had a kind of, um, uh, what do I say? They, they have a, an extensive encounter with Jesus. They, they have that twice after his death, after his resurrection. They have two encounters that are fairly extensive with Jesus. And this marks the third. But in those encounters, Jesus shows up and he leaves. He appears and disappears. He comes, he instructs, he lets them know, I'm for real, you can touch me. And then he removes themselves from the situation. And so on the one hand, they're absolutely confident Jesus rose from the dead. And they're completely uncertain about what to do next. They have total confidence he's risen from the dead, and they don't have any idea what, what is going to happen after that. I would imagine he's like the boss that we all love working with. We love showing up to work and he inspires us and he grabs us and he says, let's go. But he never shows you his own calendar, right? So you love working for this person, but you have no clue when he's gonna come, when he's gonna go, right? And so that's kind of the confidence and the, and the uh, uncertainty that Jesus is forcing them to live into. And they're glad to embrace this new paradigm, but we have to admit, how uneasy that would be, how challenging that would be, how it's one thing to recognize it existentially is another thing to live into it, 
the first neighbor, one of the first neighbors that I had an opportunity to talk to at neighbor was my actual neighbor. Um, somebody who lives in my building, I've known this person for over a decade. And uh, we knew that his partner was dying. And for the year or two, uh, his partner was was feeling the or experiencing experiencing the effects of cancer, and he was certain to die. And so our neighbor had been preparing for this for a long time. And um, and then he didn't die. It was kind of a miraculous turnaround, like in the last seeming days of his life that suddenly something happened. I don't, I don't know all the details, but he didn't die. One day I saw my neighbor walking around and he passed our storefront and he passed again. And I could see he was walking slower than he normally does deep in thought. And one day he just walked and he paused and he came back in because he knew I was there. And he said, David, I just need to talk. And then we sat down and he said, I am really stuck. I am thrilled that my partner's going to live. And I don't know how to move forward in light of that new information. I'd already prepared for his, him leaving. I'd already come to terms with that. Um, I'd made plans. And it wasn't that he wanted to go back. He wasn't regretting. He was just trying to get unstuck. He didn't know how to move forward day to day in light of the fact that there was life, that death had been reversed there. Not that dissimilar to these guys. You know, the difference that the disciples and our neighbor have between you and I is they're having a lived experience with the reversal of death of a loved one. It's not an abstract idea, right? It's not somebody's giving you some propositions and you and I at our leisure can sort of take it or leave it or consider them in our own time when they kind of fit in and we, you know, when we're bored or something to that effect. It's not like these, uh, you know, sort of truth claims that come across our feed. No, for our neighbor and for the disciples, it is in the moment, their reality. How should they live? Now, some would say that the disciples, by going fishing, are regressing. That they should, having seen Jesus, furthered the ministry. They should have been emboldened. Others would say they're actually just simply being faithful. They're being obedient. Jesus said, go to Galilee. They go to Galilee. And they're saying maybe they need food, right? Income. So they do that. I think it's sort of all of the above. They are being faithful. And yet God gives us enough confidence, not only in the person of Jesus, but I would say in the word of God to be obedient. But he doesn't tell us what we should be doing every single day. That we have to make decisions. We have to utilize our agency. But here's what I think they have been thinking this whole time. We've come to Galilee. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go while we're here. But we know this. Jesus, uh, having been raised from the dead, met us on the road to Emmaus. He met us in the upper room. He can find us wherever we are. We're going fishing. We're going together. And when he needs us, we're, we're there. They don't just go fishing. But they go in light of the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. And they're waiting for him to tell him what's next. Second. Oh, let me give us some practical. One practical thing. 
You know, oftentimes I think Christians confuse the confidence that we have in Jesus with the certainty of life. That we really want to be so confident in Jesus that we walk around and when anybody asks us how we're doing or when we, you know, we try and project, you know, like a faithful presence that we do so and we that confidence sort of bleeds into everything else and we give a false impression of the reality of our lives. That it's one thing to have confidence in Christ. It's another thing to have confidence in God. And it's another thing to be so confident in him that you can say, I don't know what is happening right now in my life. I'm confused. I'm uncertain. I'm putting one foot in front of the other. I'm confident in him, but I'm not confident in this world. But I'm confident in him moving in this world. And I think if we project a false confidence about things that we have no business being uncertain of we actually give a wrong impression a false impression of the of the the reality of the resurrection in the world god breaks in we get to be swept up in it that doesn't mean we can be certain about everything in the world second point not only are we called to spend time and thought but to be faithful means that we need to be able to laugh in the midst of uncertainties from the gut. These men are full of fear and uncertainty, and Jesus seemingly comes and he brings jokes. And let me just re read through this as I read it and as others have read it. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Earlier in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Now, the language of friends there is the language that might be referred to if we lived in, in Ireland or something, lads. And the, the way that it's written is kind of mimicking a, a um, like a housemaid who goes to the shore to interact with fishermen, who routinely goes and says, hey, you got any fish? right? And Jesus, knowing all things, knows exactly they have no fish. And when he, they say, I don't have any fish, he says, well, why do you, he gives them the worst advice ever for fishermen. Well, have you thought about throwing it on the other side? It's ridiculous. So Jesus brings levity here, laughter, absolutely confident in an uncertain time. And he, he brings good humor into the situation. And part of the good humor is the zaniness of Peter. You know, Pete, John sees him first, right? And is overjoyed. Peter sees him or recognizes it second, and he begins to repent. How does he repent? He puts on clothes to get in the water. All of us usually take off clothes to get in to swim, but he does the exact opposite. He's completely discombobulated. It's a little like, if you remember in Forrest Gump, when Forrest realizes that his mother's sick and they're away from the shore, he just runs off the boat as if he's just going to run, keep running through the water. And then he runs all the way back to, to Alabama. That's a little of it. It's, it's humor. It's not that it didn't happen. It did happen, but it's funny. It's meant to make us laugh. It's meant to um, bring humor into the situation. The, the, there's a playfulness of the Son of God here. There's a playfulness. Now, in the midst of uncertainty, he shows up, he brings this humor because he's confident in the future. 
And so because he's confident in the future, he brings his joy into this situation. He brings humor into this moment. And in him doing so, let's assume it, that is right and good. And But let's also recognize there are lots of opportunities for humor in life that are not right and good. You know, when we're meant to laugh uh, every day, that does not mean that we are meant to force laughter or humor into inappropriate situations because sometimes the world is so broken. The most important thing you can do, the, the most appropriate thing you can do is to cry, to weep alone and together. That would be the most important thing to do or appropriate thing to do. But living in light of the resurrection of Jesus makes laughing not only possible, but not only sometimes appropriate, but to laugh in the face of the dying of the light is often a remedy for the sin in the, in the world, for the brokenness of our lives. Uh, I don't, I, this must have been in the last year and a half, Stephen Colbert interviewed Dua Lipa, right? And Pascal, am I saying that right? Dua Lipa or Lipa? Do you know who we're talking about? Uh, we know who we're talking about. I think it's Dua Lipa. Yes. Sorry. But it's an incredible interview. It went viral. Everyone should see it. And in there, he gives just the most beautiful expression of the Christian faith on behalf of somebody who has a show and is a comedian. And she asks him a very insightful question. She says, um, they, they sort of uh, reverse roles in the interview. And she asks him about his faith in comedy and where they overlap. And she says, and does one ever win out? And he says, and I'm going to read a lot of this, but he says, ultimately, us all being mortal, the faith will win out in the end. But certainly hope, I certainly hope that when I get to heaven, Jesus has a sense of humor. But I think we see here, he, on earth, he has a sense of humor. And so he says, you know, I'm a Christian and a Catholic. And it's always connected to these being a Catholic, being a Christian is always connected to the idea of love and sacrifice being somehow related and giving yourself to other people. And that death is not defeat, meaning death is not the end. And then he says, and you can see where I'm getting at. What's he talking about? He's inferring the resurrection. That love and sacrifice in light of the resurrection is, uh, informs his comedy. And then he starts to talk about this movie that I've yet to see called Belfast. And Belfast is about an Irish Catholic family that's uh, living during the time uh, in the 70s and 80s, I believe, in which there's war in Dublin. And he says what he loved about the movie, and, and it's, it's so Catholic or Christian, he says, it's funny and it's sad. And it's funny about being sad. In the same way that sadness is a little bit of an emotional death, but not a defeat. He says, if you can find a way to laugh, if you can find a way to laugh about it, about the sadness, because the laughter keeps you from having fear of it. Fear is the thing that keeps you turning to evil, uh, keeps you uh, from turning to evil devices to save you from sadness. And so he's talking about laughter as a remedy to protect us from falling prey to, to our, you know, sinful or selfish inclinations when we're so sad. And then he says, so if there's some relationship between my faith and my comedy, it's that no matter what happens, you are never defeated. 
You must understand and see this in the light of eternity and find some way to love and laugh with each other. So that took place in, on his show at CBS News, and it's there on, on the Internet. You should go watch it. What is he? What is and if you know Stephen Colbert's relationship to sadness, that you know that when he was 10, his father and his two brothers were killed in a plane crash. So these are things that he has been thinking through deeply for the majority of his life. But he's also come to a place by the grace of God and the power of the resurrection where he can laugh in the face of sadness. That it's real. And yet grace breaks in. Rachel Jones wrote an article about the gospel and, and humor. And she says this, it's right to laugh when it's, uh, she says, of course, we have to ask ourselves, is it right to laugh when people are sick and dying or grieving or facing financial ruin? Certainly something has gone seriously wrong with our sense of humor if we're attempting to rejoice with those who mourn rather than mourning with them. There is a time to weep as well as a time to laugh. And that's Ecclesiastes 3.4. And James tells us that uh, we are to change our laughter to mourning as we repent of sin. But she concludes by saying some things are serious. Not everything is funny. But lots of things are. Lots of things are. Martin Luther says you, you have as much laughter as you have faith. Let that be a challenge to all of us. And I know, and I say this with great humility, there is a lot of suffering in this room. And we want to mourn with those who do mourn. And we want to weep with those who do weep. And we want to laugh when it's appropriate and right with godly humor. And therefore, as you face you and I face the worst possible scenarios. Don't be surprised if the redemptive power of humor breaks through and delivers us and doesn't just give us a moment of reprieve, but relief and hope too. So the disciples spent time in thought and they grew in their faith. The disciples, uh, or Jesus brings humor into the situation so that they can understand that death is not defeat. And then thirdly, we need to be moved by emotions to tears. Now, the third element or the third aspect of this uh, passage is that the disciples come and they eat with Jesus. He cooks for them. He already has fish. And he uh, makes a beautiful breakfast for them. And they come and they sit. And as they're sitting together, he begins to restore Peter. And, you know, Peter famously betrayed Jesus three times in a very public way. And in those three times, he didn't just say, you know, people said, you know, are you with Jesus? And he didn't just turn and walk in the other direction. He said, no, no, I am not. I'm paraphrasing. Hell no. And he curses when he does. So it is not a, a, a sort of subtle betrayal of Jesus. And here, Jesus walks him through, not once, not twice, not three times. The question, do you love me, in order to restore him. And in the third time, it says that Peter, in hearing that, is hurt. It's often translated, he's 
grieved. And the grief is, is finally the dawning, the realization in front of all their friends, all their brothers. And Peter is supposed to be the leader. That Jesus isn't just saying, do you love me in a superficial way, in a general sense, but he's taking him back to that night. That's why he says, you know all things as though he was there hearing it in some, you know, second person of the Holy Trinity way. And it says he's hurt. He's grieved. He's moved to emotions, uh, moved to tears uh, by emotions. And why is that? How does he, how is he sort of brought to life, shall we say? He's brought to life because, we'll make this case, that sin is such that it numbs the human experience. Sin is such that it numbs the mind, it numbs the feelings. And like an incredible surgeon, Jesus works upon him to a place that restores his emotions fully. That he's now allowed to feel what he actually did. But how does he do it? Jesus doesn't say, you betrayed me, you need to repent. He uses the power of love. He uses the language of love. Do you love me? And it's the words of Jesus and that category and the presence of Jesus and what Jesus went through in order to bring this restoration that Peter begins to be brought to life. In a sense, he begins himself emotionally to experience resurrection, restoration, and he weeps. The leader of the disciples weeps. Consider that as you grow in your leadership in church, in the faith. Do we weep together as Peter, the great disciple, did? So Peter, Jesus didn't just ask Peter, are you sorry? But he says, uh, Peter, do you love me? And he's brought to a restoration of his heart. Years ago, I watched, uh, that's an example of um, somebody being brought to emotions in a repentant, oh, that's another example. If I were, yes, thank you, Yuri. Uh, but the example here is one in which somebody's brought to tears because of something painful. But all throughout the scriptures, you see that people are brought to tears because of things that are beautiful and hopeful and satisfying and the, every positive thing, too. And I tend to think that those who follow Christ, that their emotions sort of live close to the surface, that they're easily accessible. Not that we're emotionally frail or that we are sort of, uh, you know, not in control or emotionally reckless, but that our emotions can be accessed really quickly when we hear the words of God or we, when we're in the presence of others. And we're just as an illustration, I remember watching years ago um, this video about a 22-year-old who'd heard her voice for the first time. She'd received a cochlear implant. And she was sitting there. She couldn't have been cooler. You know, she had sleeve, tat sleeves, and she was with her boyfriend, and she was laughing and talking, and then all of a sudden, they turned it on, and she heard her own laughter for the first time, and she just put her hands to her mouth, 
and began to sob and weep and then laugh and sob and weep and get frustrated. Why? Because this thing that should have been hers all of her life was now actually hers. She'd been restored. She was moved by emotions, moved to tears by emotions. And that's the Christian life. That our emotions should be that accessible, not reckless, not out of control, but when, by, to the word of God, to the presence of others, uh, to the people around us. So by spending time, let's go back. We're going to close here. How do we follow him? By spending time thinking, reflecting on his death and resurrection as proof that he loves us, that as uncertain as today is, that this week is, that this season is, maybe uh, that we are in the worst possible scenario that we know um, that, the ver- that there is a scenario that is even better. That in some mysterious way that there is redemption and God is at work. The second thing that we can allow ourselves to laugh every day is a sign of growing in our faith. Because sometimes the world is so broken that you have to cry and anything else is inappropriate. But sometimes there is humor that we need to laugh in the face of sin and death. And that and God not only makes it possible, but it's appropriate. And then lastly, to be moved by emotions to tears. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? But then he gives him a command. Do you love me? Yes. Tend to my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Watch my flock. Christian love is not in the abstract. And you won't be a move to emotions. And you won't experience these things in isolation. We're called to be together in each other's lives. To do this with one another. Be with people and his words and the human experience will shape you, will form you, and you will be a source of certainty to others in a world that's filled with uncertainty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and being so powerful that you can, in your perfect way, bring your presence, your humor, and your hope to us. Lord, would you help uh, teach us these things in Jesus' name?